Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, September 15th, and we finally know what the iPhone 10 looks like. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com senior tech specialist, Evan New. Evan, this is a show we've been waiting basically a year to do. It's like an annual holiday. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite days of the year, getting to see Apple's events. Um, they're always fun to tune into, but I think this one was particularly great because we knew that they were going to be cooking up something pretty cool for the 10th anniversary of the iPhone. Yeah, it's, it's a milestone event. I mean, they, they spend a lot of time talking about you know, Steve Jobs' legacy at the new theater and you know, it's a it's a decade. It's a it's pretty big milestone. They've shipped over a billion, like 1.2 billion iPhones over the past 10 years. So it's been quite a run so far. And we are going to talk about that product line. But first, like Apple did, we are going to run through some lesser products to kind of build anticipation. Um, why don't we first start talking about uh, the Apple Watch and and what they decided to announce um, with that product line? Yeah, so Apple Watch Series Three um, is the is the new kind of flagship. Um, the really the big addition here is LTE cellular uh, connectivity directly integrated into the watch itself, as opposed to having to, you know, tether and rely on the connection of your iPhone. It kind of makes it, you know, it gives it the potential to be more of a standalone device. And and this is something that has been a major limitation of this device for quite some time. You know, the idea of like being able to go out for a run and receive calls or use maps. Um, you know, you can you can stream Apple Music with the Series Three as well if you decide to get the LTE option. Um, I do think that that kind of builds out the functionality and the use case for a lot of people. You know, uh, one device is only so helpful if you have to carry around two to really use it. Right. So I do think it has some potential. I mean, I think in practice, the whole tethering and reliance on the iPhone, which you know theoretically does kind of hurt it as a standalone product. But I think in in practice, it's, it kind of remains to be seen because even on you know just for example, I have an, an older Apple Watch right now, and I have had to make phone calls on it occasionally if you know my phone's in the other room or something, and you know my wife calls and I need to pick it up. And making a phone call on your watch is really not a great experience. Like the like you can't hear them very well. They can't hear you very well. The mics aren't great. I mean, I'm sure the newer versions have better microphones and speakers, but just the the experience itself isn't that great, um, and just because you know, I, I, you could do that without your phone on the new version, I'm not sure that's going to be this game changing thing. I mean, it definitely helps in terms of just increased functionality, increased independence, but I, I'm still waiting. For me, I, I think it's too early to call on whether or not that's going to be like the real thing that drives mainstream consumers to to buy these things. One of the other things that I saw them emphasizing quite a bit in the keynote was. Um, improvements to like kind of the wellness functionality of the device. You know, they add this barometric altimeter, which is something that I think a lot of mountain bikers, runners, skiers, snowboarders will really appreciate. And you look at some of the Watch OS 4 updates that are going to be coming mid-September. Um, they redesigned their workout app. They provided some updates for swimmers. Um, they made some changes to the heart rate uh, monitoring and, and kind of giving people some more advanced heart rate metrics. Um, I see all these things, and it's like they're making it pretty clear that this is a health and wellness device, in addition to just being kind of a cool consumer tech device. Right. They're definitely you know betting really big on on the health side of it. And I think it's very interesting that it, you know um, Tim Cook did a, an interview recently on on this, and you know they really don't they, they invest in a lot of things that they don't on the health side that don't really need to be commercialized into the business, which I think is a, an interesting angle to take, and also kind of an advantage because. If they, since they can afford to invest in all these other 
partnerships with you know, medical researchers and just kind of the medical community at large, they can really expand their presence and use that data to, to improve Apple Watch, even if they're not monetizing those partnerships directly, since you know, obviously Apple's so rich that they don't really need to, but they just feel like they can do a lot of good for society if they can really advance this field, which I think is something that other smartwatch makers both don't really care as much about and also can't afford to do. And to that point, you know, we did that show on wearables, um, it seems like it was about a couple of weeks ago, and we put out a call to listeners and said, you know, we talked about use cases here, and, and you and I are not particularly sold on the wearables environment in general. Uh, you know, we just don't really have use cases that make sense for us. But please write in if, if you have some that are super compelling for you and make it like a must-have product. And a lot of people wrote in on health and wellness type stuff, um, you know, monitoring for very specific conditions. Um, or things that kind of force them to get into a little bit better shape. So clearly, it works for some people, and people with particular illness, particular illnesses, um, it can be particularly great for. But um, you know, so it makes sense that Apple is kind of moving that way. Uh, looking and, at and, oh, go ahead, Evan. And, and kind of to kind of build on that, I think it's important because while the number of people that are that you know really take advantage of some of these kind of more niche features, you might have there might be a very small number of people, but for them these features matter a lot. You know, they, they can have really huge improvements on their life, even if they're kind of a very relatively small portion of the overall consumer base. But, you know, for them, I mean, these things are really game, potentially game-changing to, to some, you know, a small number of people, but huge impact. And looking at some of the details for the product for the Series 3, um, the Series 3 with cellular is going to be at $399. Uh, the Series 3 without cellular, cellular is going to be coming in at $329. Um, they are available for for order uh, on 9:15 and actually available on the 22nd. Uh, Evan, they also unveiled an update to the Apple TV line. That's right. So Apple TV, they now added 4K HDR, uh, which I think is kind of just keeping up because that's kind of becoming the standard now. And so this move, I, I didn't think it was particularly exciting. It's just kind of catching up with what's out there already. No other real major. You know, as far as the hardware is concerned, that was about it. There's no big updates to Apple TV hardware. And, of course, they're always building out the operating system and features and functions there, but that's available across all our devices. But, I mean, it kind of depends on if you even have a 4K HDR TV. Like, for example, I don't, so I have no need and will not, would not buy this device because it would literally be useless for me. So, you know, and over, over, time, over time that changes those people upgrade to 4K TVs, but... TV upgrade cycles are pretty long, usually about you know five to seven years before you buy a new TV. So it just takes a longer time for you know that that 4K adoption to to pick up, just because it, people don't buy TVs every two years like they do for smartphones. Yeah, and that upgrade cycle is a great point because in a lot of ways Apple's kind of late to the 4K party, right? You know, you have all of these other streaming devices that are available and actually coming in at a lower price point, and so. Um, they are kind of a late mover in this sense, and they're doing it with a more expensive device. Um, they might not get, they might not really get dinged for it all that much if you know most of the market doesn't have 4K uh, HDR TVs anyways at this point, and you know they're they're kind of making it available for when that wave comes on. But for the folks that do have 4K enabled televisions at this point, um, there are a lot of other you know pretty solid options out there that sell for a far lower price. I mean, that might also be why they felt they had the luxury to wait, you know, because they know that not everyone has 4K TV, so maybe that's why they're like, this isn't a priority, we can kind of wait on this a little bit, even if everyone else is kind of beating us to it. You know, not everyone has 4K TVs, so maybe that's why they took their time. Yeah, and that actual price point is $179 for the 32 gig option, $199 for the 64 gig option. 
Um, like the updates to the Apple Watch line, they will be available for order on 9:15 and actually available on the 22nd. Um, and I think as a reminder, you know, we talk about these two segments, the Apple Watch and Apple TV. Um, both of those have their revenue built into the other products category, where it's lumped with Beats, accessories, and a lot of other Apple's kind of smaller businesses. And that total segment revenue is only about five to six percent of Apple's top line. So we, we talk about the updates that are coming here and kind of what it might eventually lead to in terms of uh, you know market size and things like that. Um, it's still kind of a drop in the bucket for them. That's right. And I mean, I, I, one thing that is interesting that Tim Cook mentioned was that Apple Watch is now the number one watch in the world uh, versus a year ago they said it was number two. So we are seeing some growth in this category. They're still not breaking it out financially, uh, but they're giving more clues. <laughs> we'll take every clue we can get since they won't give us any unit sales. <laughs> Um, Evan, okay, fine. We can we can finally get to the iPhone stuff. Um, we will save the iPhone 10 though for last. Why don't we start talking out uh, with the iPhone 8 and what they showed off? What really stood out to you? Really, um, if anything, I, I felt like it was pretty unimpressive, like the the eight. And interestingly, I actually think the same thing about the seven last year. Like last year's seven didn't seem like a big upgrade from the 6s, and that's why I personally didn't even upgrade, which is weird for me to not buy the newest <laughs> iPhone. And even like the eight, I don't see a huge appeal in either. Like coming from either a six S or a seven, the eight doesn't really bring a whole lot new to the table. The you know so the the big news here on the iPhone eight is wireless charging. So they they kind of tweak the design. The design overall design looks almost the same as it's been, which is kind of crazy because it's now been this would be the fourth year in a row that they've used the kind of same overall design, uh, with the main exception being now there's a glass back that is you know required to enable this wireless charging feature but i think the the kind of big you know if the big feature for the 8 and 8 plus is wireless charging the flip side is that they didn't really give a lot of detail on the technical specs of the wireless charging and reportedly apple might be using a slower older version of qi charging which charges at a slower rate and ironically another feature that these things have is they they support fast charging so if you plug it into supported fast charge, you get the phone actually charges extremely fast. Whereas if you use wireless charging, there's a possibility that it's going to be kind of slow, which kind of undermines the feature itself. <laughs> if you're better off just plugging in and getting a super fast charge, anyways. Well, and something I always kind of worry about with the wireless nature of things in general is just if I'm out, you know, I'm probably going to be using my cord anyways. You know, it's like the idea of being able to charge at home wirelessly is nice, but I think for most people, you know, like I have to charge my phone at work every now and then. I'm just going to do that with, you know, the the USB that plugs into my laptop to get some extra juice. Um, so, so while it's a nice kind of add-on feature, um, I, I don't know how many people are going to absolutely love it. Although you look at what they do here with wireless charging and one of the updates they made with the iPhone 7 line, you know, kind of moving away from the headphone jack, and it's very clear that they think the future is wireless. Oh, absolutely. I mean, on the wireless. On the when you're out and about, I will say that one other kind of added convenience is that we're seeing an increased number of companies and you know, locations adding these little wireless charging mats integrated into you know kind of their locations. So think about hotels, airports, restaurants, you know, coffee shops or whatever. And I mean, it's not really everywhere right now, but if you fast forward, imagine the future when lots more of these retailers and businesses want to have just kind of wireless charging mats just built into the tables for convenience that, that that's kind of nice because then you just put your table your phone on the table and it just kind of starts to charge but 
yeah, I mean, most of the time, I, I don't think it's going to be some game changer. And that's kind of a future that's not here yet. Well, one other thing that I noticed with the line that they decided to kind of switch up with this issue is um, the base storage level for the iPhone 8 is going to be 64 gigs, and there's also going to be a 256 gig option. I think there are a lot of people out there that have been sitting with 16 gig iPhones for quite some time and are thrilled to see this change. It is interesting because that's also partially how I think they're justifying the price increase because they're jacking off the prices of these iPhones, which is kind of nuts. Uh, I mean, so the base iPhone 8 now costs $700 as opposed to 650 where it used to cost before. That 650 used to be for the 32 gig. So they're kind of forcing this on, on consumers. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but you know, they are making you pay more, but you are getting a little bit more storage. And then now you know, they used to – Apple used to have three storage tiers. They used to be, you know, at a hundred bucks for you know double storage or quadruple storage, and then you know, another tier. So now they're kind of simplifying it just to two tiers of just sixty four and two fifty six. But now instead of a hundred dollar, you know, bump between those tiers, it's a hundred and fifty dollar bump. So they're kind of changing the way that they price their storage configurations. Um, but ultimately, they're they're increasing the prices, and now the eight plus starts at eight hundred dollars versus you know seven seventy last year. So, I mean, I think that they're they're just moving on up on the pricing scale. And I've long thought that that is a lever that they had to pull if they wanted to kind of do something with average selling prices. You know, I, <laughs> for a lot of people, 16 gigs isn't enough. You know, while we do live in a cloud storage world, there are so many things that you actually want on your phone, whether it's music, podcasts, you know, video and photos that you take. And, you know, with all the applications that you also have on your phone, very often you wind up bumping up pretty close to that 16 gig total. So, um, you know, forcing people into this is, is something that I think really makes sense. Uh, it's responding to, uh, I think, what consumers kind of want, and it should bear out pretty well in their financials. Um, looking at when these will be available, pre-orders are available on September 15th, and like the other lines, they will start arriving on September 22nd. Uh, there's also an update to iOS coming uh, September 19th. All right, Evan, I think we've let people wait long enough. Why don't we start talking about the iPhone X? The main event? The main event. Uh, this is a totally new form factor. Uh, there's no home bezel on the screen, edge-to-edge display, glass front and back. I think they delivered a pretty cool device. I think it looks pretty great. I mean, one of the things that if you looked at the Samsung uh, Galaxy S8 earlier this year, one of the big things was that screen looks awesome because it's edge to edge, has rounded corners, and just looks really, it looks like a really nice display. And the reviews also reflected that too. Everyone just loved that device. And it really put a lot of pressure that Apple kind of needs to make the same move this year because, again, they've used the same iPhone design for this will be the fourth year running. And I mean, it's just kind of getting a little, you know, people are used to it. It's getting kind of old. And you they kind of needed it to, to spice things up with a, a pretty big, you know, really impressive display, and I think that they delivered. And cosmetically, the phone looks quite a bit different, but I think once you start looking at some of the things under the hood that are powering the phone, that's where it starts to get really impressive. Yeah, that, that, that new um, A11 Bionic chip in particular looks like a beast. I mean, Apple's, it, it's incredible what Apple has done over the past seven years on their semiconductor team. Uh, and like these chips are basically comparable to low-end Intel chips that power MacBook Airs, and that's in a phone that you carry around in your pocket, and it's all custom-made by Apple. And the amount of, and, and for the first time ever, they're now making their own GPU, which 
was we, you know, we probably we basically saw coming because they told their previous GPU supplier, Imagination Technologies, earlier this year that they'd be ditching them. And they, you know, they had this little public spat, and Apple actually said that they told Imagination in 2015 that they are going to stop using their stuff. And you know, Imagination doesn't really think they can do it. Doesn't think Apple can do it. But here we are. Apple's unveiled their, their first graphics processing unit embedded into the the chip itself, and it looks like the performance is going to be great. I'm sure there's going to be litigation because Imagination is going to dig into this thing and try to look for their IP, you know, hoping to, to to sue Apple <laughs> or something. But I, I mean, Apple knows what it's doing, so I, I think they're probably going to be okay. And you, you talk about all of the various components that are in here and, and how high performance they are. I think that that's something that can be kind of lost on a lot of the average consumers. Where you do see it on the user experience side is with all of the really interesting AI stuff and machine learning stuff that is going to be super visible for users of the new iPhones. Yeah, so you know, the big feature on the, the iPhone 10 is this facial recognition and the, the, the 3D sensing, which you know, they're calling a true depth camera system. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the amount of processing that's going to have to go into that to be able to recognize your face under various different conditions. You know, they talked a lot about how you know, if you get a haircut, you grow a beard, you put a hat on, you know, it'll still recognize you. And that's, that's really all being driven by this new neural engine that's inside the chip. Uh, that can that can handle this type of special processing with AI, and that Face ID system that they're going to be using, <clears throat> that's really the new Touch ID for them. You know, they are they are looking to move beyond that because they think that it's a more secure way for people to use their phones. I think also they are developing so much technology that um, will kind of piggyback onto that. That kind of getting people used to it is probably generally a good thing. Um, but it was pretty darn cool to see the demos of how the you know the the spot laser that basically shoots fifty dot thirty thousand dots out onto your face recognizes your face, kind of kicks that all back into that A11 chip and unlocks your phone actually works. Listeners, if you haven't watched any of the demos from the Apple announcement, I highly recommend checking them out. And, and to kind of dig into that topic a little bit further, so what's really going on here is Apple's using these these small devices called. Uh, vertical cavity surface emitting lasers, which is kind <laughs> Say of that awesome. five times fast, <laughs> or VCSEL, or let's just call it Vixel, which is how it's pronounced. So they they have these Vixel arrays, which are basically tiny little lasers. You put a, a ton of them into all next to each other, and it becomes an array. And that's the dot projector that Apple is talking about. And you know these lasers can be tuned across a wide range of wavelengths. In this case, they're using IR, so infrared um, wavelengths, making everything invisible to the human eye. So the way that these these projectors work is they, they shoot this pattern of dots out, and then you know, you know obviously if you're shooting a, a pattern of dots onto a flat surface, you know exactly it's going to be exactly what you expect. So what it does, it analyzes the deformations in the pattern as they appear on your face to kind of determine the depth and there's you know that that the projectors on one side and then they have infrared camera on the other side to kind of look at a, this pattern from a different angle, and that's how this whole system works. Uh, the flood illuminator is to basically just shoot a, a, a large IR flood uh, so that the system can see in the dark. Which is it's absolutely incredible. It's it's definitely kind of next age technology, and um, something that gets you pretty excited about getting this device in your hands. Looking at the dates, though, no one's going to be owning this anytime soon. Um, they won't be available for order until October 26th, and they'll actually start shipping November 3rd. Um, do you think a lot of people are going to be willing to pony up the just under $1,000 for the 64-gig phone, Evan? 
I think that they will. I mean, Apple, if, Apple, if there's anything we know about Apple, it's that people always want the latest and greatest one, and they're willing to pay because Apple has incredible pricing power, and people are also willing to wait. So I, I don't think the iPhone 8 is very impressive. I think the iPhone 10 looks great. So I think that a lot of people are going to kind of forego the 8 in favor of the 10, even though the 8 is going to be cheaper, will be available faster. But, I mean, waiting until November you know, isn't really a great thing anyways, and I think that that has a lot to do with uh, one of Apple's suppliers for these Vixel sensors, Finizar, uh, last week reported that they're having some delays related to their manufacturing because they had to change their manufacturing processes. And that, and that delay, I, I think, is very specifically what's causing the iPhone 10 to be delayed because Finizar said they'll be able to ramp in November, and as luck would have it, that's when Apple says <laughs> this new device will be available. So I think there, I think that's directly related to, to why we're seeing delays. And as of last week, Apple hadn't given Finisar approval to begin volume production. So I think that's you know, kind of a tough balancing act. And looking at some of these product release dates, I think you can only naturally go to, okay, how is this going to impact Apple's financials? Because it seems like the phone might be in people's hands a little bit earlier than they actually are going to be. And the company reported pretty interesting guidance coming into next quarter. Um, I believe it was something to the tune of like four to ten percent year-over-year growth that they'd be looking at for the fiscal fourth quarter. I think a lot of people took that to mean that the newest iPhone model would ship during that period. Doesn't seem like it's going to happen though. Right. So yeah, the guidance was really strong last month, and you know we talked about this before. I think when we did the earnings show, but it really, yeah, it really suggested that this iPhone 10 would launch on time because they're forecasting 49 to 52 billion in sales which at the high end would represent an all-time record for the September quarter. So that's a very bullish outlook. And you know, you and I talked about it, but it made it sound like, yeah, 10 is going to be on time. Here we are. Now it says, oh, 10 is going to be delayed until November. So my theory is that, you know, we just talked about these Finizar delays. My theory is that at when Apple issued guidance on August 1st, these delays weren't there. So they were expecting a timely launch for the iPhone 10, but then, you know, Things change within a matter of weeks, and then I think that these delays, you know, came after that guidance. So in my mind, I what I think is that Apple was caught off guard by these delays. It thought it was going to be on time, issued the really strong guidance. Turns out these things are delayed. So you know, I think investors should be you know very cognizant that there's a real risk here that they're going to miss their guidance on this fiscal fourth quarter, which closes you know in a couple of weeks now. Because I don't know how they're going to hit that level of guidance on just the iPhone 8 and 8 Plus, which, in my mind, are not that great of updates. Well, and when that sounds bad, and I think that that's the kind of thing that creates you know some volatility with the comp- with the company um, short term. But in my view, these types of issues really just mean that phones are going to ship at different times. It's like I don't think it's something that's going to really meaningfully impact total volume. It's just that. We're going to see, you know, a pretty strong fiscal Q1 for them with uh, the product actually shipping in the beginning of November, and then I think you're going to see a pretty strong fiscal Q2, which is the calendar Q1 of 2018, um, because a lot of that demand is going to bleed into that quarter. I, I definitely agree there. Um, like well, on on one hand, while there's a risk that they might miss on Q4, you know, like we talked about, these you know, Apple customers are very loyal. They're they're willing to wait. And if it's just a matter of shifting a sale from one quarter to the next, and it's not a lost sale, that person's not going out and buying a Samsung or an Android. It's really a short-term nature. It's just shifting it from one quarter to the next. Doesn't impact the long-term story. It's just a kind of a quarterly bump in the road. 
which if anything, if, if the stock reacts negatively, it might be an opportunity to get, you know, to add more or you know, to buy back in because, yeah, I don't think these sales are going anywhere. This just being shifted a little bit. So ultimately, even if there is some risk there, I think it's pretty modest in, in the long term. If you know, It's really just a short term risk. Two other numbers that I think looking at these products, you can start to um, you know just kind of wonder which way they might move is the average selling price, which is one of the core numbers we look at with the iPhone segment, given that it makes up such a large portion of Apple's revenue. And you see that sticker price of $9.99 for the base model. You know, with the larger storage, it's obviously going to cost more. Um, I think it's reasonable to say once these start shipping, iPhone ASPs are probably going to go up. Uh, yeah, I would definitely expect that. I do think that they're going to hit new records in, uh, in terms of this metric. Um, they they did lower the price of the cheapest iPhone SE from 400 to 350, but the product is still the same, so it's not like you know that's not going to be a huge sales driver. Uh, and with them bumping up the prices on this 8, A plus, and 10, and the highest 10 goes to 1150 for a 256 gig iPhone 10, and 1150 is like the price of a, a Mac, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. And yeah, so I, I, I am going to expect to see some some pretty nice gains on the average selling prices. Uh, probably going to break above 700. Uh, right now, the current record is 695. So I, I think we do have some opportunity for some upside. Probably you know set between seven and 750. And with that price hike, I think it's also natural to kind of wonder what might happen to margins. Um, you know, Apple has uh, this tendency for a device maker to make unusually high margins. Um, looking at an $1,000 phone. I don't know that they're going to be meaningfully improving their margins because so much is going into the iPhone 10 to power it with all this new functionality that we've been talking about. Right. So generally speaking, anytime Apple introduces these new products, I mean, any brand new product you have starts at the height of the cost curve in terms of your R&D costs that you've you know <clears throat> capitalized and are kind of including into their manufacturing expenses. You know, because that you know when they have these new products, they have you usually have new manufacturing processes, new manufacturing infrastructure. It's a huge upfront cost, uh, and, before, and before that can be spread out over time, you're you know when you're at the beginning of a new product line, your costs are really high. So you know, and, and that, that's before we even get into the actual just component costs, which as you touched on are also going up. I mean, the, the OLED panel itself. I mean, panels in general, display panels are usually the most expensive component of any product, and in this case, they're estimated at uh, the OLED panel is estimated at 120 to 130 dollars. Compared to last year's LCD panels, which are about fifty dollars, so we're talking about a you know pretty big increase in the panel costs of you know, seventy seventy five dollars. And to kind of put that into perspective, last year's iPhone seven build materials, the third party estimate was at about two hundred and twenty dollars for the component costs. So if you know we're coming off a base of you know two twenty used to be what these things cost, and now just one component alone increases that by seventy five dollars. That's a huge increase, and then you know Apple has its own margin profile to maintain. They want to add their margin on top, so that's why yeah, that's where you get these these big price increases. As far as the the true depth camera, you know those Vixel sensors are, are pretty cheap. They're about five bucks uh, worth of content in these phones. That's those estimates I've been reading. So those aren't huge cost drivers, but you know I think the flip side is a lot of that's that's very software intensive. So they have to invest very heavily on the software engineering side to make this feature work. Which you know adds to their overall costs. Evan, as is usually the case when we talk Apple, we tend to get a little long-winded. I see the fine folks over at Market Foolery waiting in the studio behind the glass right now to get in. Uh, so I think we need to wrap this conversation. But before we do, I have to ask you: Are you going to be buying the iPhone 10? 
I will be buying the 10 since I have, I've had the 6S for two years. I skipped the 7, so I'm due for an upgrade, and I'll be going with the, with the 10. Uh, I, too, have the 6S right now, and are, I'm just eagerly waiting to get my hands on the 10. Austin Morgan, man behind the glass, would you buy an $1,000 iPhone? Um, so, currently, I'm kind of flying under the radar. Um, me and my brothers are on a family plan, and my mom is still fronting the bill, and I don't think she realized I'm still on the plan. So until that changes, I'm going to stick with my iPhone 7. <laughs> Makes sense. You got to do what you got to do. Um, Evan, thanks for hopping on and talking to Apple. No problem. Thanks for having me. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. Got feedback or questions? You can always shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people in the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on.